So you should have an outline. Are we ready, Anvesh? Uh, let's get started. You should have an outline that has, uh, again, we're running two series coterminously. So it should say eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series, element 7i, small letter A, B, and C in italics, uh, because we're on the element seven of the eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. Um, I should have renumbered this. This is probably the 93rd lesson, and I'm going to have to go back and refigure this out because I didn't get very far in the material last week. This was not uh, what we're doing this week is trying to complete what we did last week, and based on our results from last week, I'm anticipating that we'll actually even need next Tuesday night to finish this outline. So, uh, um, And so in the, the other series that, that we're kind of running at the same time, is a new version of the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series. We had a kind of longer version of that from around 2010 or 12 that went into a lot more uh, things about the Holy Spirit in a lot more detail. But then we did kind of a short version of that uh, in somewhere around 2012 or 14 that was just four parts. And this is kind of an expansion of that. And I'm anticipating it being 16 parts and maybe more if we add a third section that would be how to grow in the gifts and fruit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And so if we add that, then it'll probably, I don't know, become 25 or 30 parts. But as far as uh, what we've done so far, this is on the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series. This is chapter 7b. Last week we started looking at four contemporary perspectives on the Holy Spirit uh, that are out in the, that are in uh, Christianity today. That is American Christianity in particular. Four different approaches to the Holy Spirit that you'll find in various church groups today. And um, I'm anticipating that it's going to take tonight and then one more week to finish those four, defining them and biblically critiquing them. So uh, I'm not going to review a lot about the series as we're doing um, I will say on the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series, there was a section A, which this is kind of the end of section A, will be element seven, or I mean, yeah, chapter seven. And that is, uh, why do we need a greater knowledge and experience of the Holy Spirit than what most of us have had up till now and what is mostly being experienced, especially in Western Europe and in the United States and uh, other English-speaking countries? Uh, countries of the world. Obviously, if you know anything about what's going on worldwide in Christianity, there's an explosion of the gospel in Central America, South America, all through Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, and uh, New Zealand, which is a little bit ironic because that is an English-speaking country, um, and some other places like that, uh, the Indonesia, and uh, Mo, uh, there are a few places where the gospel is not growing, much like it, like it is. The gospel is very much shrinking in, in Europe. Um, it's shrinking in the United States of America. It's not making much progress in Japan. Still, Japan is about 1% Christian, and there's no significant church growth movement going on in Japan. Uh, but there is almost worldwide. India is exploding with Christians. Indonesia, Singapore, where where did Sam go? Singapore is up from about, 
seven or eight percent Christian in, in the early 90s to about 17 or 18 percent Christian now. And that's not untypical. Taiwan, it's growing a little slower, but, but there's significant Christian growth in, in uh, free, the Free Republic of China called Taiwan and so forth. So, uh, but most of the places where, that, where Christianity is exploding, exploding, it's decidedly charismatic, Holy Spirit-oriented kinds of Christianity that are exploding. And um, there's a whole set of problem sets that go with that. Unfortunately, what's known as the prosperity gospel is also exploding and, and really causing trouble in, in a lot of uh, developing nations. Uh, it's definitely not the message they need to hear. And uh, so that's unfortunate. But, and then there's other problems as well. One of the unusual phenomena is that if, if you go back to um, the continent of Africa, I think there's 38 nations in Africa. Does anybody know that off the top of their head? 54. 54? Okay, so remember we discussed that one time and you looked it up, but I couldn't remember. <laughs> um, so thank you for Google, Lord. But uh, <laughs> we, we Googled that one night when we were talking, right? Um, so... Uh, most estimates are there were somewhere between 3 million and 10 million Christians in Africa around the year 1900 and a population of about 180 million on the whole continent. Today, there's a population of about 800 million and there's approaching, or 900 million, somewhere in that range, and there's approaching uh, 500 million Christians. The, the growth of Christianity has been explosive all throughout the continent of Africa. However, it's really the first time in the history of the church that Christianity has exploded without changing some very fundamentally root things about the culture, especially the economics of the culture. And that's somewhat because we've, uh, imbra- we've ex- uh, exported American pietistic, dispensational, uh, kind of retreatist, dual- dualistic Christianity to the world. And so, um, believe me, the things that we're trying to do here will be uh, hopefully quite important in other venues as time goes on. So, all right. So anyway, um, last week we started looking at uh, the, um, the last part of section A, why we need a greater um, experience of and knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Um, Well, it looks like I assigned this to be under section B, finding and following the biblical pattern, which uh, is interesting. So anyway, section B of the series that we started in on Sunday mornings is called finding and following the biblical pattern. But anyway, I'll have to figure out which section of it we want to put this one under because it's kind of transitional between the sections. If you look down on your outline at Roman numeral 6, last week we looked at the, we kind of, listed what the four modern perspectives on the Holy Spirit are. We defined them a little bit. We recommended a book. If you want to study this in some detail, there's a book that we have in our, uh, you know, that you can sign out called Quenching the Spirit by William D. Ortega. I believe it was his master's thesis, and it is pretty intellectual stuff, especially because he has about 40 to 50 footnotes per chapter, and the footnotes are well worth reading. 
I mean, you'll get a lot more out of the book if you read every footnote as you're going. <laughs> so, um, because he actually starts with, uh, he actually starts with what was known as the first great awakening in America. So he starts with kind of giving some historical perspective. And rather than start at the beginning of church history and trace it through, he kind of jumps in right in the middle of a particular episode in church history called the Great Awakening, uh, in, which uh, happened in both England and America approximately in the 1760s. Uh, frankly, there would have been no American war for independence in, in the 1770s had there been no Great Awakening of the 1760s and 70s. And uh, he uh, kind of jumps into that and, and looks at the factors that eventually killed that outpouring. And then from there, he kind of goes into the factors that, that have killed outpourings of the Spirit throughout the centuries of the church. He kind of uses that as a case study uh, at the beginning of the book. Then he goes back and traces that same phenomena throughout the history of the church and then gets into uh, more modern expressions of that in some biblical defense of his positions and so forth. Now... Um, last week, we looked at, if you jump down to Roman numeral 7, uh, we only looked, for the most part, at modernism. Now, we're trying to talk about modernism in a bigger context, and if you are specifically a Presbyterian, you would think of the modernist fundamentalist controversy as what happened mostly in the 1920s, uh, involving Princeton University and uh, various figures, famous figures and H.O. Macon and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we're really talking about the whole idea of modernism sweeping Christianity in general that I would probably say some of the roots of which probably date, uh, date back to the Renaissance, some of which date back to the Enlightenment, but it really began to uh, impact the church in quite noticeable ways shortly after the American Civil War, about the 1870s, with the uh, rat explosive growth of, of the idea of Darwinism. Uh, you know, when Darwin's Origin of the Species was published, people actually camped out in lines like, like kids do for rock concerts today, uh, you know, like uh, hoping to get one of the first copies uh, and the... the you know, the, the first printing sold out in three hours. Because fallen man is always highly motivated to look for a way to suppress the knowledge of the creator. It's as simple as that. And uh, what had happened was um, all ancient cultures were evolutionary. Uh, ancient Babylon, ancient Egypt, no matter what ancient, the Mayas, the Mayans or whatever, the... Incas, all that, and any ancient culture you look at was evolutionary, but most of them had a mythopeak or um, definition of, of how the world came about. So Christianity uh, had come along with a superior uh, intellect and, and, and superior defense, and it had really smashed evolution as a defensible idea in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century AD. And um, the world was kind of dying for uh, an evolution, explanation of evolution that, that was pseudo-credible, that was somewhat believable. And so uh, when you read sort of like the Egyptian cosmogonies, and the, that is their stories of the birth of the universe, 
you know, almost all ancient cosmogonies start with in the beginning there was water and water is sort of a universal symbol for chaos because water has no form or shape and gets quite chaotic when the when it's not contained in a container. And uh, um, out of the primeval waters came a primeval muck and the primeval muck kind of grew into a primeval island and then the primeval island uh, out came a cow. And of course, all of that requires some ideas like spontaneous generation, uh, the eternality of matter, uh, and so forth. And so all Darwin did was say out of the primeval muck came a single-celled organism. And that seemed so much more credible than a complete cow. Of course, we didn't know about DNA and, and all, how complex a single-celled organism is, <laughs> as we do now. You know, there's like 22 proteins in, a, in any cell. Uh, there's millions of pieces of information needed and chromosomes and so forth. And it still requires life to come from non-life to believe in evolution. It's still a huge jump of faith to believe in evolution. That's really uh, quite a leap of faith, to be honest. But when evolution started gaining dominance in the West, it, was, it became a challenge to the church. And many of the uh, mainline churches began to embrace, embrace evolution as we I've talked, we studied a lot on at Wright State this past, on the Tuesday night Bible study this past semester. And they began to embrace uh, a view of scripture called higher criticism, both of which are, are based in materialism and a naturalistic worldview. That, uh, that a priori dismissed the possibility of creation or any other spiritual side of life or, in, or miraculous activities. So we dealt with the modernism um, and its approach to the Holy Spirit would be, uh, would be that there is no Holy Spirit. Uh, many modernists mainline still believe in a trinity, uh, but they wouldn't uh, expect any creative or supernatural uh, activity of the Holy Spirit in, in the church at all. So then we, uh, tonight we're going to look at cessationist or cessationism and the new uh, modified cessationism, which is, is starting to grow. And we, we introduced that a little bit last week. I probably shouldn't have because we were getting late and I should have probably just said, well, we'll look at that next week. And I, I, I think next week we will probably not get to tonight. I'm guessing we won't get to what I would be called the third wave uh, which developed in the 1980s. But next week we will look at that. And I'm hoping that we can do uh, the third wave and continuism, continuationism, which are the third and fourth approach to the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping we can do both of those in one week uh, so that we only spend three weeks on these four modern approaches to the Holy Spirit. So cessationism, um, let's, let's define it in the new modified cessation. Of course, the root word is cease, and it's, um, it's the idea that the activities of the Holy Spirit were, are only given at special times to confirm a new revelation of God's word. So the uh, Pharisees and, and actually the, many of the Israelites going back to the times of Jeremiah and so forth, 
They believed that there were miracles in the ministries of Moses and Joshua and miracles in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha because Moses and Joshua were the fountainheads of God making covenant with Israel, giving his law, giving the, um, the ordinances and statutes that go with his law, which are, in a sense, hypothetical case laws of how to apply the law, and uh, causing Israel to make covenant with God in such a way that Israel crossed the Jordan, entered the promised land, and began to experience the promises that God had given Abraham about dwelling in the land and so forth. So God did miracles with Moses and Joshua because of that special time period. Then that stopped. Uh, after the time of the judges, uh, Samuel uh, is raised up by God as uh, the first of the prophets. Uh, and he's kind of transitional between the judges and the prophets, you might say. And then Elijah and Elisha become in many ways the fountainhead of the ministry of the prophets. So the theory is God does, did miracles uh, during their ministries because he was bearing witness to the prophets who called Israel back to faithfulness, reminded Israel of the covenant law, and laid out the promises of the coming of a better covenant in Christ. All right. So the Pharisees of Jesus' day were of that mindset. And that actually predates them all the way back to why uh, some of the explanations for why ministries like Ezekiel and Jeremiah were, were rejected in their day. Because in that mindset, God is, what, what God did in the past is okay, but God is not allowed to do anything now. It's as simple as that. So we, um, so if you look at John chapter 9, um, let me clarify something too. I um, I want to talk a little bit about Pharisees. So I would say that the uh, the modern the modernist mindset is completely rooted in the worldview of materialism. That is a spirit of unbelief and skepticism, where only natural-minded explanations for anything can be accepted. Whereas the cessationist mindset, I would say, is rooted in two things: partly in modernism where only natural-minded explanations can be accepted. So we, we are too sophisticated to believe in Jesus casting out lots of demons and, and all that kind of stuff because, you know, now we have psychology <laughs> and, uh, and all that. So um, I would say that's part of the cessationist uh, paradigm and mindset towards Scripture, that God only did these things. In, in the modern cessationist viewpoint, in addition to God doing these things through Moses and Joshua and Elisha, Elisha and Elijah, he did it through Christ and the apostles, but then he stopped doing it at the end of the apostolic era when the canon of Scripture, the New Testament canon, was written and when um, um, the apostles had, had died and the church was established and Israel had been judged, Jerusalem had been destroyed, and Jesus saying, I will build my church, had been well established. Now there was a new congregation, a new people of God, a new called out people that God was in covenant with and through the new covenant, and therefore miracles were not needed anymore. That's sort of the modern cessationist idea. Now, 
More recently, a what I would call modified cessationism has begun to develop and is, is kind of growing fast. I, it's hard to predict how, how big this will become. But what's happening is, um, in the original fundamentalist evangelical paradigms that rose as a re reaction to modernism, there was an anti-church history uh, philosophy that, you know, God is dealing with us direct and what he did in the first few centuries is not that important. And so with an ignorance of church history, it was kind of credible to say, well, the miracles uh, stopped with the apostles. The problem is, is uh, it's as... Um, more and more people have gotten into reading the Antinician Fathers and the Nicene Fathers and the post-Nicene Fathers. Uh, all the, the writings of the church fathers of the 2nd through 5th, 6th centuries, uh, those people testify to tens of thousands of miracles in their midst. There's resurrections from the dead, healings of breast cancer, uh, in fact, it's kind of fascinating reading about healings of breast cancer because they basically say, well, uh, that breast cancer was considered a death sentence and uh, that going back to uh, uh, Hippocrates and the Hippocratic Oath, all that, that guy, going back to them, he had basically said the only way to, to fight breast cancer is to have a mastectomy and, and buy the lady some time, but, but even with a mastectomy, she would eventually die. And I thought, wow, we haven't gone that, we haven't progressed that much, have we? Although there's uh, better options and, and hope and progress in science so far. But still, uh, so there, you know, there's documented cases of, of, of miraculous he healings in the name of Jesus Christ from breast cancers, from leprosies, uh, all sorts of things. Demons being cast out. There's literally tens of thousands of church fathers in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th century that testify to casting out demons. So the problem is, is you can't, um, you can't really defend the idea that the gift stopped with the apostles anymore because it's just too well known. It's just too much common knowledge. And you can't say, well, we received the 27 books of the New Testament as the authoritative word of God and reject all the church fathers of the second, third, or fourth century, because even though all the 27 books were written, uh, I believe by 70 AD, some people would say by 90 AD or so forth, depending on how conservative or liberal you are on that particular issue. But um, even though they were all written, there was no universally accepted list of the books until Athanasius wrote his uh, Easter encyclical or letter to counteract the heretic Marcion, who uh, had basically listed 14 books of the Bible that he thought had, were reliable because he was, Marcion was a spinoff from the Gnostics, and he basically taught an idea that's very big in evangelicalism today, that the God of the Old Testament was a mean, harsh, bad dude, and the God of the New Testament was love and grace and mercy. And so Marcion rejected the whole Testament. Uh, it, if you get to know most you know, of your evangelical uh, people today, almost never do you find people who actually know both Testaments because the, the Old Testament is not officially rejected. They would never say that. That's against the, the infallibility of Scripture and so forth. But in practicality, 
all the mindsets of dispensationalism and antinomianism and dispensational premillennialism and all these mindsets have dismissed the message of the Old Testament. So almost no evangelicals read it. Except for pastors and you know, highly educated people. So, but then they have ways of dis- dismissing most of its message. So, um, after the apostles, of course, you, especially after Constantine, in, in 313, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, uh, issued what's sometimes called the Edict of Constantine, it's sometimes called the Edict of Milan, because he was in the Greek, uh, Roman, the Roman city-state of Milan, uh, when he wrote it. Sometimes it's called the Edict of Toleration, which can be a little confusing because there's quite a few other documents in churches, in, well, in world history, that are called the Edict of Toleration. But on 313 AD, Constantine reversed the direction of the Roman Empire up till then and made Christianity legal. And he saw Christianity as being so important to the empire that he actually called the first several ecumenical councils because the, the church was being threatened by various cults like Arianism. And he said, hey, you, the bishops need to come together and decide what does the Bible really say and what is the truth of Christianity. And that's how we got, actually got both the Nicene Creed, all the decisions of the first several ecumenical councils. Of course, he didn't live long enough to be there for all seven. But, uh, and the, can- the New Testament canon that we have today. So whether they know it or not, all evangelicals accept the church councils, uh, uh, whether they know it or not. Because they accept the 27 books of, of the New Testament as being the divinely inspired word of God. Right? So with that in mind, uh, that's a lot of explanation just to get down to um, the new modified cessationism is basically saying, well, there's all these miracles during the times of Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa and, you know, Clement and whatever, whoever you want to, Basil, whoever you want to pick on, uh, John Chrysostom and so forth. All of these people testified in miracles and everybody thinks their writings are really important to study and, and believe. So maybe the gifts of the Spirit stayed until the, the canon was fully accepted. So maybe God didn't withdraw the gifts until after the 4th century. That's why a couple weeks ago we spent a whole lot of time looking at all the testimonies of, of recognized church leaders throughout the centuries that say we casted out demons, we rose the dead, and we saw lame people walking and so forth. Uh, You know, you can't get away from that some of the greatest church leaders, like a lot of people respect the Quaker movement, George Fox and so forth, because, of course, the Quakers started the abolitionist movement. And uh, uh, I'd say that was a pretty important thing to start. (laughs) And and, uh, so, uh, but you can't have it both ways because they also had... The, you know, lame people walked and blind people saw and, and there's all kinds of testimonies of that kind of activity uh, in their midst in, the, in their first uh, few, several decades. So the new modified, so we dealt with already kind of critiquing cessationism from a historical point of view. What I want to try to get into tonight is kind of critiquing it more from a biblical point of view. All right, so 
Now, again, I'm saying that cessationism has dual roots. One is the mindset called Phariseeism, and the other is naturalism or materialism. Okay, uh, all of Western culture is extreme, extremely natural-minded and extremely materialist. No, nowhere do we... Uh, not have some kind of problems with unbelief. And if you remember, when Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, it said that even Jesus was not able to do many miracles there because of the unbelief of the people. Now, their unbelief was rooted in the fact that a prophet's not welcome in his hometown. Modern unbelief is rooted in a pseudo-scientific, naturalistic, skeptical worldview that grew out of the Enlightenment and has continued to dominate to the point where uh, even, even if you study psychology today, you don't, like 100 years ago, if you studied psychology, you would be studying mostly the uh, subconscious, inner solical and spiritual life or an emotional life of people that today uh, psychologists don't even acknowledge that you have an unseen part of your being. So now today, psychology and psychiatry has been become studying brain waves and, and uh, you know, electrons firing in your nerves and so forth. And more and more psychological cures have become psychiatric cures of, of uh, more and more use of psychotropic drugs. Because there's no, more and more no mindset there, that there isn't, is even an unseen aspect of who you are. So the idea that, that men have a, uh, a soul and a spirit inside of them, that, they, that we have unseen intellect and unseen emotions and so forth, they would, they would uh, not acknowledge that anymore. But, it, but things you know, tend to happen gradually. So like when Freud, who was a, a, a very anti-Christian thinker, uh, kind of rebelling and hating his Jewish roots and, and hating the idea of God and so forth, he still acknowledged man having an unseen aspect of his nature. And then, of course, all the self, what you would call the self-psychologists of around 1900 and 1920, like Maslow, Maslow's need hierarchy. I've heard that they still at least cover that if you're a psychology major. Carl Rogers and people, uh, Young and all that stuff. I, uh, but increasingly, they don't, they kind of, you might get that in some introductory psychology classes, kind of like, this is the archaic past, but that's, that's no longer what psychological studies are about at universities. It's all about the chemical, physical, biological things that are happening uh, to cause your emotional problems. Right? So that's just kind of a side on, on materialism. Now, this is very important. When we say that the cessationism is rooted in the mindset of the Pharisees, I want you to listen carefully. All words have a denotative meaning and a connotative meaning. And the denotative meaning of a word is what it actually means in like a dictionary definition. In the connotative meaning, it's more the flavor or the emotions or the feelings you would associate with that word. I wish that I didn't have to say sensationism was rooted in Phariseeism, because we have come to think of Phariseeism as such a pejorative or negative term that it's om it would be um, uh, 
it would frankly be abusive if you were to, to, to if I was to say to John Luke, John Luke, you're a Pharisee, I, that would be abusiveness. But you're not, of course. But um, that would be an unkind thing to say because we've come to associate so many uh, negativities with that. But the truth of the matter is, uh, you know, I, I have a friend who's actually a pastor who has a bachelor's degree from Cedar Univer- Cedarville University and a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary, which is the mecca of cessationism and dispensationalism and so forth. And he is a very dyed-in-the-wool cessationist and, and all of the things that we're trying to work to help people uh, see more biblically. He follows all of those, and, we, and he's an advisor to me. I, I uh, call him all the time and say, see, how would you guys think of this or that problem? And uh, um, he's the one that's convinced me that I could actually get a master's degree at Cedarville without getting kicked out. But, uh, <laughs> uh, which I don't know if he's right or not, but uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to try it. But I, I got accepted to the program, but I haven't pulled the trigger on taking the classes yet. Um. So that would be funny if, we, if I start writing books with a master's degree from, in history from a secular university and a master's degree in biblical studies from a cessationist dispensational university. Uh, <laughs> uh, that would be great on the bio. But uh, <laughs> um, anyway, um, he has a saying. Uh, he goes, I'm a recovering, recovering Pharisee. Because the truth of the matter is uh, we are all recovering Pharisees. So let's, let's kind of look at denotatively what a Pharisee is. Try to do your best to look, um, to get past all the negativity and just more denotatively look at what the ideas are, okay? So let's, let's go to John chapter 9, and I'm just going to read verses 29 and 30, but I would encourage you to, to look at the whole chapter, uh, maybe I'll read a little bit more than 29 and 30. Um, and remember John's message on John 10, because John 10 uh, comes right out of John 9. A very important practice is to remember that the chapter breaks were put into the New Testament in the 8th century or so. And so uh, they sometimes come right in the middle of a paragraph or a flow of ideas. Never stop reading at the end of a chapter. Always read at least a paragraph or so into the next chapter. And never start reading at the beginning of a chapter. Always back up and review what happened in the previous chapter because a lot of times it's a continuing thought. As Jesus is clearly doing when he says that he's the door to the sheepfold and all this in John 10 and how his sheep know his voice and so forth. So, um, after Jesus heals the blind man, the Pharisees are really upset about that because they're very committed to God only did miracles in the time of Moses and Joshua when he gave us the law and in the time of Elijah and Elisha to confirm the new ministry called the prophets. And as Jesus testified, they they built the tombs of the prophets. That is, they greatly honored the prophets who their fathers had killed. <laughs> and they said, if we were alive in that, those days, we would have received them. 
but we're not able to receive what God's doing now because that's part of their paradigm. Hopefully you're following all that. And so uh, let's start in verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. In other words, they're talking about Jesus. Hmm, They were a little bit wrong on that point of view, weren't they? Uh, He therefore answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said therefore to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples, do you? They hated that statement. And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Take that. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, and yet he has opened my eyes. So one of the things you'll notice in Scripture, when God uses anything from a jackass to a pagan to rebuke his people, that's because they're really not getting it. Okay? God does that all through the Bible. Uh, But when you get rebuked by a pagan or a jackass, uh, (laughs) that's really like, hey, I can't get you to listen here. Like, this, they get rebuked by this uneducated blind man when they took pride in knowing this. They, they, to be a Pharisee, you had to have memorized what we would call the Old Testament and all the commentaries, commentaries that go with it called the Midrash and the Mishnah. It would be equivalent to I w- if I would say, Sidney, you can join when you have read, you know, memorized the entire scriptures and all the notes to... Uh, the ESV study Bible or the Reform study Bible or something, or both, of course, (laughs) or something like this. Um, You know, they really prided themselves on their knowledge. That was their their whole um, identity was both in their self-righteousness and their level of we know and you don't. So when this guy rebukes them, it's a huge deal. They're basically getting rebuked by a guy who didn't go to their schools. You know, in Acts 4, everybody uh, says the disciples were uneducated men because the Pharisees and the, San, and, the, and the Sadducees of the Sanhedrin say about Peter and John that they observed that they were uneducated men. So you'll hear pastors all over the countries all the time saying, the disciples, Jesus chose uneducated men. They're basing it on, on Acts chapter 4 in the observation of the Sanhedrin, <laughs> which is not really the most reliable source on how to interpret Scripture, just to let you know. Uh, so, um, you know, they... Um, uh, the truth of the matter is, P- Peter, Andrew, James, and John grew up in Galilee. And in Galilee, you memorized the first five books of the Bible and probably around 1,000 to 3,000 other scriptures by the age of 12. And it was the ones who were excelling at this the most that got invited by the Pharisees to be their disciples. What Peter, Andrew, James, and John were, were guys that had done all that process, but they hadn't excelled as much as Paul at it. So they didn't get invited by, Gamaliel was the top 
Pharisee of the Pharisees. And, and therefore, Paul was like a super Pharisee to be invited to be discipled by him. And basically, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were just guys that only had memorized the Pentateuch. And in other words, they had more Bible knowledge when Jesus called them the most pastors today. So the observation that they were uneducated men was basically the equivalent of, you know, my father-in-law had a PhD from Harvard, and you, you know, like if you don't have, like I have a brother who thinks, well, you never got, you know, I finished a master's degree, but not a PhD, so I must be stupid, you know? You're like, you didn't go to our schools, you know? Uh, you went to Ohio State? What an idiot. No, no, or whatever, you know. Um, you didn't go to Harvard, so you don't know anything. That's, that's really what the Pharisees are saying in Acts chapter 4. You, didn't, you, you, you don't have our degree, uh, so you're not educated. You don't have our mindsets. Because if you don't have our paradigms, then you're stupid. So a lot of that goes on in academia today in all sorts of circles, Christian and, and secular. So anyway, so we know that God is... Where, where's the guy go? Uh, so he says, uh, you don't want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. I think we covered this already. Then the man said, well, here's an amazing thing. You don't, he opened my eyes, but you don't know where he comes from. Then the, the, then the man says, we know that this really killed him, that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Isn't that interesting? I think that's amazing because remember, Elijah rose people from the dead, healed leprosy. Joshua stopped the sun for 10 hours. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I mean, like changed the whole nature of the solar system. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a pretty intense miracle, I would say. That's more than healing the common cold. And, uh, and they, uh, there's never been someone who opened the eyes of someone born blind. Which is specifically true because God uses events of Scripture to, uh, to tell us something and what he's telling us is that Jesus is the only one who opens the eyes of people born blind, which is every one of us. God has specifically held that back for Jesus to be the first to do because that's what he does time and time and time again. If, you're, if your eyes have been opened to the reality of God and Christ and the gospel and sin and redemption and all that, it's because Jesus opens the eyes of people born blind and no one else can. And all of us were born blind. So, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you are born entirely in your sins and are you teaching us? And they put him out. What are they saying? We always talk about read, learning how to read the law of, of the reverse negative, like always say, what is it not saying and what is it saying? What they're saying when they say you're born entirely in your sins, hopefully this is obvious to you by now, is they're saying we are not sinners. We are righteous within ourselves. Self-righteous. We are the same as in, in the Gospel of Luke, the man who who is, uh, you know, praying and thanking God that I am not a sinner like the, this other guy. <laughs> That's what they're saying, right? 
Um, so Jesus finds him. We can go on and then, uh, you know, he believes in Jesus and worships him and so forth. And uh, in verse 39 through 41, we'll end with that. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see it may see, and those who, who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about... Uh, uh, well, let's also read Acts 7.51. Uh, again, the context would be nice if we had more time. Acts 7 is Stephen's trial before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, just as you know, was, uh, is, was made up of 70 men, and they were more Sadducees than Pharisees, but they were both, always both Sadducees and Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were more popular with the people than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more like the liberal political solutions to life. And the Pharisees were more like fundamentalist evangelical Christianity, if, uh, to be honest. And um, so um, Stephen, when giving his defense, uh, recounts the entire history of God with Israel and one of his summary statements is in verse 51 when he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers had done. So I have some scriptures you can confer with because Jesus made the same point to them over and over. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and so forth. And that, they, that you're that the people, the leaders of Israel were always resisting the Holy Spirit, that they persecuted every prophet he sent, and that they said, if we had been living in those days, we would have received the, what God was sending in our day. But part of the mindset of the religiosity that the Pharisees were in is we can receive what God did in the past, but we cannot receive what God is doing in our midst. And the doctrine that God is alive, you know, to be, just to be clear, we, we along with all, all Christians, we affirm that God stopped writing Scripture with the close of the New Testament. But God didn't die then. <laughs> and he still does things by his Spirit. No one can even be born again except by a powerful miracle of the Holy Spirit. You can't even be sensitive in your conscience or convicted by the Holy Spirit except by the powerful activity of the Holy Spirit. And God, God the Holy Spirit is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever, and he always does the same things. And the hindrance, like in Nazareth, is our unbelief, not God wanting to do less in our day than he's done in the past. That's very important. So let's talk a little bit about some major ideas of Phariseeism. But again, I'm not trying to talk about this in like in a uh, pejorative, uh, condescending, negative way. I'm just trying to talk about it's a certain mindset that you bring to the interpretation of God in Scripture. And that that mindset is very deeply rooted in the church today in fundamental evangelical approaches to God. Okay? 
So one is, is uh, what you would call ex, uh, environmental externalism. And that uh, is the idea that there are sort of bad places and bad people. And the most important thing we do in raising our kids and so forth is the reason we uh, retreat into this area and that area and so forth is we, can't, we have to keep our people away from the bad environments and the bad people. Now, I didn't send my kids to public school. <laughs> Actually, I did send them for one or two years, two of them, and that was a big mistake. Uh, <laughs> wish I hadn't. But, um, you know, we did a mixture of very good Christian schools and, and, and private schools, but we also equipped our kids to be ready for public schools. By the time they were 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th grade, they were, you know... Uh, starting Bible studies at public schools and stuff, even though they didn't attend there. You know, the, when we started the Bible study that Logan came to Christ from and, and, and uh, at Stivers and that Edwin came to Christ from at the school down here and so forth, you know, my kids were teenagers when they started those Bible studies. So, um, so environmental externalism is kind of this, uh, you know, we we stay away from all the bad stuff and the bad people and, and that kind of thing. And we try. So, you know, when Jesus ate with sinful people, the Pharisees were very offended by this. You do, Christians don't have dinner with sinful people. Now, we would recommend, like Jesus did, since we are not Jesus, and I have a fallen nature and I am in a process of sanctification, Jesus sent people among the fallen people in groups of two. Make sure if you're going to go share the gospel in the bars and stuff, take another brother or sister. Be prayed up. Memorize some scriptures. Get equipped to do it. But, I, you know, I grew up in a church where about half of the people in the church got saved in the bars, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> we used to preach in the bars all the time. So... Um, it's not, the, the difference between a biblical Christ-like perspective is Jesus changed the environment. He wasn't scared of the environment. What you get a lot of times today, you know, like I, I meet homeschoolers all the time who do a very good job homeschooling their kids and they're, you know, they're always the kids who win the national spelling bees and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, and then I do, you meet homeschoolers all the time whose kids are very far behind academically and socially and everything else because the major reason for homeschooling is we're afraid of the world. So one of the things we always did is we did a mixture of good Christian schools and homeschooling. And we prepared our kids by the time they were junior high to be at least able to be active in in public schools and play on secular ball teams and so forth and, and be the answer there. So there's a difference there in the mindset. It's, it's uh, instead of being scared of the environment, you're, you're equipped to be an environment changer. So that was part of the reason why uh, Jesus, the first time he healed a leper... Uh, if you go through the, through the Gospels, uh, Mark and Matthew both record this incident. Jesus laid his hands on the leper. He was saying something very important when he did that. I'm not an environmentalist. 
because lepers were unclean, and if you touched their environment, you became unclean. And he's saying it's God who makes everything clean. It's God who sanctifies. So don't go into the bad environment without the power of God. (laughs) But the power of God is greater than the leprosy. So take another brother or sister and pray up and so forth, but mostly take the power of the Holy Spirit. Take Jesus with you when you go. (laughs) And then go ahead and touch the lepers. Pray for the people with AIDS and so forth. Right? Uh, Second aspect, so do you understand, like, environmentalism is a huge deal. That's a very, very big part of the Christianity of today. Like, let's protect our kids from real experiences with real schools and real people and real lives and so forth. And that just is, is, doesn't work. You grow up unprepared for real jobs and marriage and handling real finances and everything else. And then when you get out there, you know, get your first job at 16 or whatever, you're, 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 you know, you have uh, arrested development issues, which, you know, it's, it's a sad part of what, what we do, but I, I would actually say that we, we experience arrested development issues among Christian kids more than among worldly kids. That's not going to sell a lot of tapes. Well, they don't have tapes anymore. That's an old, whatever. That wouldn't sell if we put it in a book. Let's just put it that way. That would not build big churches to to bring that message. But it's real and it's true and it's needed. Secondly, Phariseeism, again, not using it as a, uh, I'm holier than you, so you're a Pharisee, or any negativity like that. Just trying to say this is the actual Doctrines, paradigms, hermeneutical perspectives on how to interpret Scripture and what who God is and what He is doing in the world today in the church. There's a moralism that is a performance-based self-righteousness. Okay, if you know Michael Horton, uh, a Reformed author who's got some good and bad, like everyone else, but. Uh, he coined the phrase that, you know, modern evangelicalism is moralistic therapeutic deism. And it really is a good phrase because, of course, deism is the idea that, you know, God did these miracles in creation, but he doesn't do, he's not doing any miracles now. And we don't have expectations of powerful things happening when we come to worship the Lord or when we go out to share the gospel we don't have expectations of the lame walking or whatever. The therapeutic idea is that, you know, if you go to any Christian bookstore today, go to a family Christian bookstore, you'll find the number one category of selling book selling is self-help books, right? How to have your best life now is if like, which is like wrong on so many levels. It is scary. I mean, that's so narcissistic and it's so self-serving and it, uh, you know, and it's, and it's self-righteous. It's, it's self, 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 self. 
Self-help. Ugh. It's yucky. Um, moralizing. Most kids in the church today grow up with, these are the things you need to do to be a good little boy and a good little girl. And, and, this is, and we don't hang around these kind of people and so forth, which is why, do you mind if I share a little bit of your, like you had a hard time when we first started working, believing in the doctrine of sin and that men were sinful and so forth because you basically were brought up in such a way as well, everyone I've ever known is a pretty good person. Right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so because part of the moralizing is that we, uh, out of our rejection of God's law called antinomianism, we replace it with our own legalism. And so we have our own criteria. Well, we don't drink wine and we don't steal cars and we don't smoke and we don't run around with people like that because we're environmentalists, so we don't know any smokers or drinkers or, or anything. And we, you know, we don't go to the bad people's movies and what have you. And people take it to different extremes. But... Um, but it's kind of like this moralizing message. And most kids that we start working with that have come out of evangelical or fundamentalist homes see themselves as a pretty good Christian. And until you see yourself as a miserable, terrible loser of a Christian, you don't have any hope yet. <laughs> I'm one of the worst Christians I've ever met. Maybe, maybe I am the worst. That's one of my great questions that I'm going to ask Paul. Or, of course, he made it for, send me, hopefully I could go directly to Jesus. But, like, when Paul says that he is the chief among sinners, is that actually true? Or is that how we're all supposed to feel about ourselves? I'm pretty sure that we're all supposed to feel that about ourselves. If you don't think that about yourself, then you're really a lousy Christian. <laughs> really. I mean, because we are lousy Christians. I was only 17 when I came to Christ, and I'm 60 now, so guess what? I've sinned a lot more since I became a Christian. Because <laughs> isn't that how the Christian testimonies go today? I was this terrible sinner. I drank beer and hung around bad people, and then I became a Christian, and I've never drank beer since then and never known any bad people. And, uh, and, like, and we actually kind of think of it as like I stopped sinning, and I... Then I, and I haven't sinned anymore since I became a Christian. Listen, all my worst sins were after I became a Christian. Oops. All right, so uh, better move on before you, I guess, get stoned to death. All right. Um, un unfortunately, the third aspect of the Pharisee mindset is its anti-present activity of God while affirming the past activity of God. Whereas the modernists would, prefer, would not affirm either one, a Pharisee would say, Jesus rose from the dead. The apostles did miracles. The church spread by miraculous things. Whereas the modernists would say, the disciples thought Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> you know, uh, resurrection of faith rose in their hearts somehow. Isn't that wonderful? I, we don't know how because it's clearly impossible for someone to rise from the dead. So... Uh, I, there's no accounting for how they believed it, but the church spread because, by golly, they believed it. <laughs> they, they received resurrection faith, even though there was no resurrection. Whereas, you know, uh, the Pharisee mindset would acknowledge the resurrection, but it would not acknowledge that God's still doing stuff. 
It wouldn't acknowledge that people are being resurrected from the dead today, which happens in lots of places in the world lots of times and has in every century of church history. So, um, in fact, you know, this thing about opposite biblical trajectory. I, oh, boy, we're late. Well, we're only doing cessationism tonight, so we probably... What, what, it would, what is ideal? You know, like there's this whole revival thing, um, doctrine like today, which is like this, our Christian life should be this roller coaster and uh, so forth. What is happening for the most part in Western Christianity is the um, tangible, flowing, discernible presence of God's Holy Spirit with his, among his people is declining gradually. Many, many charismatic churches that, of the, that were moves of God of the 60s and 70s are drying up. Uh, that's part of the whole mindset of Western Christianity today. What should happen is that over time, the present activity of the Holy Spirit should be increasing in our midst because we are journeying together out of the skeptical, naturalistic mindsets of modernism and into higher expectations of who God is and that we have a better covenant and therefore we're to expect better things. And the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in a tangible, concrete ways, with, by definition, God is a spirit wherever he moves. There must be new births. There should be changed lives. There should be uh, gifts of the Spirit. There should be supernatural healings. There should be fruits of the Spirit. There should be a sense. Uh, I, I remember when we first started the uh, ministry at, at Stiver School for the Arts, the Bible study that Logan became a Christian through. I remember a young lady uh, came from that uh, who my daughters were befriending. And uh, she was an active lesbian. Her parents were divorced. Her parents were very in favor of her lesbianism because they were so liberal. They were like, you know, that you have to live out. You were born with these propensities. Let's, let's explore this and live it out and this sort of thing. And I believe it was the second time she was here on a Friday night or whatever. She touched, the power of God was so deep in the worship that she came up to me afterwards and said, I don't know what Christianity is or who your God is, but I know that was God and that I felt God, and whatever you believe, that is the real God. And um, she started having Bible studies and grew in the Lord until her parents forbade her to come back and encouraged her to start on her, start smoking more marijuana, uh, which really happened. But who knows what God might do with that fact that he touched her, and she'll probably, hopefully she'll... Remember it for years to come until God gets a hold of her life. So, uh, due to time's sake, I wish I could develop pietism more. We did a whole lecture on that. There's a long, uh, uh, there is an actual recording on our podcast if you want to listen to it. Antinomianism we covered um, and why it leads to legalism and, or licentiousness. We didn't cover misogyny um, and we really probably don't have time. 
Um, to, just to say there's two predominant perspectives on women and their giftedness in the church today. One is called egalitarianism and one is called complementarianism. Both of them start with the idea that women are created in the image of God and are co-heirs of the grace of Christ and therefore equally important in, in, the, in the church and in God. Egalitarians would then say there's no difference in office or function. The woman can be the head of the home or she can be an elder in the church or, or whatever. We would not accept that. The complementarians would say even though the woman is... Uh, truly important, gifted, and so forth, and we celebrate her greatness and what God has made her and so forth. Uh, God has given there to be roles in the family and in the church, which would include the husband being the head of the family and having headship and servant leadership and all that and laying down his life and sacrificing for the sake of the family and so forth. And the same thing about eldership and deacons and so forth, although we do believe there could be an office of a deaconess, but let's not get into that. The only thing I would say that's important to note is that in many conservative circles, complementarianism is sometimes misapplied to where the husband is kind of lording it over the family. Uh, he's not a servant leader to where the elders are users instead of empowerers and so forth. And so uh, many times women's giftedness, instead of uh, being developed and celebrated and released, is often squelched. Anytime you get into any kind of legalism, you'll, you will notice, if you study it out, that the women always get the raunchy deal in legalism, especially in the way they dress and how they have to present themselves to the world around them. And... The men get to wear suits even though they're spandex or what, what is that stuff? Uh, polyester. <laughs> but, but at least they sort of look normal. <laughs> even though they're wearing polyester suits. No, <laughs> but the women have it much harder in, in any kind of legalism. Um, that's when I, you know, it's, it's uh, kind of an anti-woman thing. Jesus, you know, spoke to the woman at the well and Jewish men, he was basically saying something really important when he did that. One, he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Jewish men did not. They would actually cross the Jordan and go on the east side up to Galilee and then cross again and go on the east side back down to Judea so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria because let, you know, like I might have to actually talk to a Samaritan, right? And then Jewish men did not talk to women in public because women were considered beneath that. In a Jewish court, women were considered one half as good a witness as a man. It would take two, witness, two women to equal the, the, witness, the witness of one man in a, in a court case. And in fact, one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection is that the Gospels record that it was women who went to the tomb first and women who saw Jesus first. And if they were just trying to pull one over and make their case, they would have never recorded it that way. There can be only one possible explanation for why they recorded it that way. It happened that way. And Jesus elevated the status of women by choosing to do that. God was sovereign and providential in who saw Jesus first. So, that's no extra charge. All right. <laughs> um, 
What, you know, one of the things I often say is if you take, if you, this is a whole teaching you should study out, read, Wayne Grudem's written a bunch of stuff on it, Stephen Clark, something you should read books on and acquaint yourself with, but in the whole, what's called egalitarian versus complementarian debate, our church is, is very officially complementarianism, complementarian, but we say if there's a river between the two positions, we want to get as close to the river as we can and even get our feet wet a little. So, if that helps, I in terms, because um, you know, too many times women's gifts are squelched and not encouraged and so forth. And you know, even in raising children, I always say you you know you should husband and wife should function like a presbytery, but there has to be one presiding pastor. Uh, but any any man who doesn't consult his wife on financial decisions, raising the kids' dis- decisions. Where, what our priorities are supposed to be, what, what our goals are supposed to be, should we let them play on the baseball team or whatever, is a fool. And who, you know, who, write, who lords it over everything to, to serve his own uh, ambitions and so forth. That's foolishness. All right. Um, another, so, scripture twisting. Oh, boy. I screwed up tonight again. Cessationism is a big deal. Um, so, in cessationism, uh, there's historically it was based on two scriptures, uh, although one of those scriptures has now been abandoned. And I, I'll bring this to a clear close as quick as I can. John sixteen twelve through fourteen, when Jesus is talking in the Last Supper which in the whole point of the John's version of the Last Supper is continuationism. John, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with the Father, but I'm not going to abandon you, nor the mission. You're going to keep doing it because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to, and, you'll, and you'll do the things with the Holy Spirit the same way I did. That's the whole point of John 13, 14, 15, and 16. So in the midst of that, he says the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you into all truth. Cessationists see the Holy Spirit only doing that to give us the canon of Scripture. The problem is leading and guiding isn't just revelation, it's also illumination. We still need the Holy Spirit to teach us what the scripture actually says. And you will get the wrong message out of scripture every time if the Holy Spirit does not illuminate it to you. So the deeper you cultivate a power and flow and experience with the Holy Spirit, the more you'll actually see Scripture. This is what Jesus means when he says to the Pharisees who memorize the Scripture, the reason you're mistaken is you know neither the power of God nor the Scriptures. If you're not experiencing the power of God often and regularly, you will have the wrong interpretation of the Scriptures. All the time. It's a... It's a it's a spiritual law as powerful as gravity. You need powerful counters of God's presence in our hearts and midst because 1 John 2, 27, it's the anointing from the Holy Spirit that teaches us all things. Pastors can have the greatest messages or not. Uh, <laughs> I'm more the or not. But, uh, uh, but it, it, it's only what the Holy Spirit opens, illuminates to your heart and mind that, that you'll actually see. Luke 24, Acts 1, etc., Jesus tells them to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. 
you're not, until you're what, what's called being baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're actually not supposed to go out and minister. Think about that. Now, many people, uh, and you, I hope that you've walked with God long enough to know that at times you've disobeyed God out of ignorance of what his word really says. Not intending to do so, but the truth is you're supposed to wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And if you're not ministering out of that clothing from, with power from on high, you're not doing it God's way. Uh-oh. There. Okay. We got a new one on order, I know. All right. 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13 is often the most uh, popular uh, cessationist verse where they basically say love never fails, spirit gives a prophecy, knowledge and so forth will will cease when the perfect comes, okay? Now, most cessationists have abandoned this, by the way, because they they have admitted what what has been pointed out over and over is that the context is clearly making the perfect when we come to be with Christ. Either if we die and go to heaven, uh, or, you know, some eventually there will be a generation that lives long enough to be here at the second coming of Christ, and those will be the perfect. So, um, do we want to even do another week on this? I hope not. <laughs> Maybe we will do another week on this. So let me just close with that thought, and then we will do points four and five next week. I don't, I, we're going to have to re-record this whole thing and get it down to some manageable size somehow. <laughs> sorry, my, I'm doing bad. All right, sorry. Boy, this is getting bad too, isn't it? All right. I, even if I walk, it seems like it's stirring up. So uh, the, the the original cessationist said that the perfect had to do with the coming of the, of the writing of Scripture. Okay, Mo- almost all cessationists admit nowadays that the clear context is when we go to be with Christ. I remember the first Bible study we had with Leah Gray, who'd been ra- raised cessationist and had graduated from two cessationist Bible colleges and had never considered the possibility that the Holy Spirit didn't die with the apostles and all that kind of thing. And she, she actually said... I've always known that that has to do with when we go to be with Jesus. That was like her first comment that she made. She goes, I, 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 I've always believed cessationism, but I know it's not, it can't be based on that verse. <laughs> you know, because that's obviously when we go to be with the Lord. So what they'll actually, the, and here's one of the ways you could know that, is because think about what these gifts of the Spirit are. Prophecy is when God says to Jeff Burks, Jeff, I want you to encourage Brother Greg about such and such and such and uh, so forth And uh, because I don't always hear very well, right? Anybody hear the Lord perfectly all the time, every time? <laughs> right, so sometimes I need, you know, you know, Amber to hear something from God that she wants to tell me, right? We need that as a group. We need that as individuals. We need that in our families. We need prophecies that is to speak on behalf of God all the time, right? But frankly, when we go to be in heaven and 
you know, Jeff Burks and Jesus and I are sitting in a room <laughs> playing euchre or something. No, <laughs> whatever. I'm just kidding. And, and Jesus says to Jeff, Jeff, would you share with Brother Greg this and that and the other? Jeff will not want to be rude to Jesus, so he'll very nicely say, Jesus, I'd be glad to do that. However, Greg's sitting right there. He heard you perfectly, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, right, I mean, that's really the point. Speaking in tongues is a spiritual language to pray and fellowship with God in because our spirits and our minds are so limited. And his spirit is unlimited. Right? Knowledge... I have had the privilege of reading books by really bright people. And sometimes some of them are so godly and so full of scripture knowledge and stuff that I go like, wow, like I don't get, I don't see like those kind of things when I read the Bible. Like how are they so gifted to get these insights? But none of them are omniscient. I've not made any progress in my 43 years of being a Christian on becoming omniscient. <laughs> and in fact, part of one of the ways knowledge actually works is the more you know, the more you know that one thing for sure that you don't know anything. <laughs> well, you know something, we, you know, like it's the Christian doctrine of knowledge is that we know accurately what God has revealed about himself in scripture and church history and creeds and things like that. But we never know anything exhaustively. Right? So, of course... There will be growth in knowledge until we're with Jesus face to face. None of these things could cease until the perfect comes, which is that we're actually in the presence of God. So we'll stop there and we'll uh, talk about the overall grand scale of scripture reduction, uh, which is what we spent the whole semester on for those of you who go to the Right State Tuesday Night Bible Studies. And we'll under, uh, talk about misunderstandings of gift categories next week. And I'm sorry I'm taking so long to develop this. Hopefully this is good stuff for you. Um, I think it's good stuff. Or I wouldn't be spending the time on it. But um, unfortunately, I'm not that good at... Uh, brevity is not my gift. <laughs> so hopefully you're learning a lot of stuff from it. So let's end there.